Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We are going to do our utmost to support member states to address the situation. We need to take this situation, of course, very seriously, but we must not give in to panic and even more importantly to disinformation. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and you just heard Stella Kyriakidis, the European Health Commissioner, talking about the coronavirus. We'll get a health check on Europe's response to the virus later in the podcast. We'll also take you to the Belgian city of Alst, where the local carnival has doubled down in the face of allegations of anti-Semitism. And we'll hear from the EU's economic policy supremo, Valdis Dombrovskis. But first, let's explore some of the big stories of the week with our pan-European podcast panel. So a warm welcome to our podcast panel, Annabelle Dixon's in London. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. Reem Montaz is in Paris. Hi, Reem. Bonjour. And Matt Karnichnik's in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello there. And why don't we start with you? Uh, developments in the CDU leadership race this week. We have three candidates, Armin Laschet, the Premier of North Rhine-Westphalia, Friedrich Merz, a kind of back-to-the-future guy who was uh, prominent in the CDU about 20 years ago, and Norbert Rutgen, uh, the former cabinet minister. So has Germany basically just about chosen its next chancellor? Well, that's what it looks like right now, although between these three guys, you you have a huge kind of uh, difference, in fact, even though to sort of the outward appearances, they seem to be quite similar. Merits would be particularly, you know, radical compared to Merkel, I would say. He's somebody who has made no secret of the fact that he thinks that Greece should have been thrown out of the Eurozone. He is somebody who really wants to take Germany on a much more conservative course than we've seen over the past 15 years. He's a free marketeer. And then you have somebody um, in in Armin Laschet who is much more in, in the Merkel mold. I think he's also somebody who might be a more um, attractive partner for, for France. He seems to be much more open to pursuing deeper integration with with France, whereas Merz sort of pays lip service to it. But in the actual details, it sounds like he is not going to be the kind of person that Macron would have an easy time uh, dealing with. And the, and the last person, Norbert Röttgen, who really is the dark horse candidate here, but who might have a chance at the end of the day as some kind of a compromise because the party could end up being split between the other two. Röttgen is somewhat more conservative than Laschet, I, I would say. 
maybe more of a, a traditional conservative, but also not quite as far to the right as Merz is. He's a transatlanticist. He's a strong believer in the EU, but he's also somebody who is uh, known to be an Anglophile. So I think that he's somebody that the UK uh, would probably have an easier time dealing with maybe than somebody like Laschet. Also someone who's made a bit of a name for himself on China recently, right? That's right. He's taken very strong stands on uh, China in the 5G debate, coming out against um, doing deals with Huawei. And he's also taken very kind of principled stands, I would say, on issues like Crimea and and also in in the Middle East. Well, I hate to bring it back to Brexit, but you obviously touched on their sort of more Anglophile candidates. But but do you really think there would be any difference between the candidates in terms of what they were willing to countenance in the in the Brexit trade deal? I, I do think so. I think that both Merritt's, who is someone who, you know, has spent the last uh, 15 years or so in, in, involved in the private sector. Uh, he's the chairman of BlackRock in Germany and sits on a number of boards. And I, I think that they would have a much more sort of sympathetic ear to the uh, concerns that the UK has in these negotiations. Both he and uh, Röttgen are you know, Anglophiles. They've got a lot of contacts in the UK. I've spent a lot of time there. So I think that that could actually make a difference. They might be the kind of German that um, successive British governments have been expecting uh, to find, but haven't so far on the other side of the negotiating table. I think the thing that I wonder about is, you know, would any of them at some point be actually not only willing, but able, given the coalition governments that will continue, I suppose, to exist in Germany, would they be able to respond favorably and be up to the task of, you know, what Macron is suggesting, which is a strategic dialogue when it comes to deterrence, but also strategic autonomy, defense, and just in general being more assertive when it comes to Europe, as opposed to relying, as Germany has for so many decades, on America? I I think in terms of Europe, yes. I think that uh, certainly Laschet and and probably Röttgen would be much more willing to negotiate some kind of uh, further integration with Macron, especially if they were to join a coalition with the Greens, which looks likely. I think it would be more difficult under Merz, uh, who seems to take a, a, more, a more traditional approach on, on the question of, of defense. I don't know that there would be much difference between the three of them. They're all more or less transatlanticists, maybe Laschet, not to the same degree as, as the others. And, you know, I don't think that many people in Germany really in, in, in that part of the CDU, anyway, re- really believe that um, strategic autonomy is a viable option. Okay, Matt, in a word, is it Laschet's to lose? Is he the front runner here? I think that's what a lot of people thought, but he's he's sort of untested on, on the national stage, to be honest, and we're starting to see that now. He made some very controversial comments about Syria a couple of years ago, suggesting that the West should cooperate with Assad. And, you know, these are the types of things that uh, kind of show that he, he might be out of his depth on, on, some of these, on some of these issues. And he's only been the premier of North Rhine-Westphalia, which is Germany's biggest state, but still he's, he's only been the premier there since 2000. 17. So he doesn't have a lot of executive experience. Okay, well, maybe just mentioning Syria there, uh, obviously the um, 
Well, the you know very distressing events in Idlib uh, continue to make some headlines, although perhaps not as much as you might expect for a kind of uh, you know a tragedy or a drama on that scale. Reem, this is one uh, you wanted to talk about. Uh, what did you want to raise here? Well, there's a couple of things. One, I think it's very important to keep repeating what the facts are currently. According to the UN, there are over 948,000 people who are displaced and have been displaced since December 1st by the offensive that has been launched by the Assad regime, supported by the Russian Air Force on Idlib, which is the northwestern province, the last province that the opposition to Assad still holds. Now, who is there? You know, the Assad regime, the Russian Federation say that it's jihadists who are in control of that province. It's much more complicated than that. It is true that there are jihadists who control parts of the province, but there are also non-jihadists. And the reason why there is this uh, concentration of jihadists is because over the past eight years of the conflict, the Assad regime and the Russians, every time they've uh, pushed the opposition, rebel groups, Islamists, jihadists, whatever we want to call them, depending on which part of the country it was, every time they pushed them out of the stronghold that they had, they sent them to Idlib. In addition, of course, to all sorts of civilians who are internally displaced. So there's more than 3 million people in that province right now. Most of them have already been internally displaced, and now they're pushing to the border with Turkey. Out of the almost a million people who are pushing to the border with Turkey in freezing temperatures, there have already been babies and children who have frozen to death. There are more than 60% of children. So with that in mind, one has to stop and wonder... Why aren't we talking about this more? Why isn't there more uh, outrage? Why isn't there more importantly than outrage? Why isn't there actual concrete action being taken to stop this? And the answer, in a very short way, is that the West, the West, I mean the US, the EU, early on in the conflict, I'm talking about 2012 and 2013, of course, basically abdicated any will to do anything you know, effective in Syria and ceded the ground uh, to the Iranian support that was being given to Assad. And then, of course, in 2015, that um, decisive uh, Russian military intervention that has now grown into, you know, five years of real military support. And today, the EU and the US are pretty impotent. And so the state of play right now, the reason why we're talking about it a bit more, is that last Thursday, the French President Macron and the German Chancellor called Putin and uh, then Erdogan and suggested a four-way summit uh, to try to reach a ceasefire and perhaps maybe try to get Russia uh, not to block um, humanitarian aid access to Idlib as it did twice in the UN Security Council in January and in December. And just in a nutshell, the chances of success are very low, if not zero. Yeah, it is very striking, I think, uh, just looking back on, um, you know, previous conflicts and how much attention, public and political attention they've got to look at the scale of this one and see how it just doesn't seem to be front and centre. I think there's a lot of reasons for that, probably more than we can get into now. I think one thing we actually really do need to underline to our uh, audience is that 
this is not just a question of, you know, morality or humanitarian aid or humanitarian um, impulse. This has to do with real strategic interests for Europe. This is not just, you know, a migration crisis that could actually return to Europe. It's also about, you know, geostrategic interests in the region. And it's really striking that we are not talking in these terms. It is a policy and strategic failure that Europe is completely, and the US, by the way, um, unable to do anything at this stage. And it's Russia's game to play. Yeah, it's a, it's a topic that as you know, continues to be yeah talked about, but just not, I don't think, in the same way as, as previous conflicts on this scale. And it, it's quite it's quite striking. Um, let's move back to kind of domestic politics. Annabelle, Dominic Cummings has been making the headlines again. Boris Johnson's kind of, well, whatever you want to call him, czar, uh, enforcer, uh, power behind the throne. Give us a very brief summary of, of where things have got to here. And I think we can talk a bit more broadly about, about these kind of people who, who, you know, in just about any political system, there are, there are people like this, the kind of unelected uh, advisors in the shadows. Yeah, absolutely. So in the, in the absence of a sort of perpetual Brexit drama, the sort of all-out war going on between the government and the civil service, and um, Dominic Cummings, who you just referenced there, there's been sort of loads and loads of different reports, but the main ones are that he's accused of bullying special advisers. Um, those are the political appointees, usually actually appointed by ministers, but he's seized control of that and is making them all report to him and sort of sacking them at will. And there's been anonymous stories about him being uh, making them spy on their ministers, um, which is, is quite fun, maybe not for the ministers. And then... Over at the Home Office, the kind of big story of the week was Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, has also been accused of bullying officials. And there's reports that she's been trying to get rid of her top civil servant in her department. Um, so there's this all out sort of briefing war going on and lots of soul searching about that relationship between politicians and the civil servants and their advisors. But I, I mean, I'm very interested. I thought it was a good thing to talk about on the podcast this week because I'm very interested whether you know, other leaders in other political systems have this same sort of problem. Obviously, here in, in Brussels, we had the recent example of Martin Selmayr, who was Jean-Claude Juncker's uh, chief of staff when Juncker was president of the commission and then became the top civil servant in very, very controversial circumstances. And he was accused of all sorts of things, you know, being a big centraliser, having outsized power, uh, you know, driving things from the centre. And the, the irony is, I was hearing from one of our reporters who's hearing that now some of the people who used to be constantly complaining about that now complain that there's no grip at the centre, that they, you know, that he's gone and now they're... Um, and, and I'm sure this is also a narrative put about by his uh, many fans. Um, so it's one of these things, you know, can't live with them, can't live without them. Uh, Reem, is there anybody in, in France who would kind of fit that role? You know, there's one short answer and it's no, because Macron has made it a point not to allow any possible advisor to have a profile that is that high uh, and could actually, you know, overshadow anyone. Because let's not forget, Macron was the advisor who overshadowed the president, uh, who basically plucked him out of, uh, you know, obscurity. And he basically became president instead of him. Uh, and so there are uh, quite strict, you know, marching orders uh, that are 
really uh, respected, which is that advisors must stay in the shadows and must stay in their lane. Now, I don't doubt that there are, uh, you know, clashes of personalities. There are some very big personalities that exist, but there is no one who has risen to the prominence of Dominic Cummings, and that is by uh, by design. Matt? I, I just wanted to throw in, you know, you, you don't have it necessarily everywhere, but it does seem that you have this narrative of the deep state and I think in, in France as well, to a degree where there's this tension between, you know, this new government that comes in and is, you know, promising to change everything, to clean everything up. It's very similar, I think, to what we've seen under Boris Johnson. And then you have really the backbone of government, which is the civil service that's been there in some cases for decades. It's the continuity. Uh, and, you know, they tend to not want to uh, change everything overnight. So there, there is this natural tension there, although now it feels to me like certainly what we've seen in the United States are these, these you know, crazy accusations against people who appear to just be doing their jobs, but are, you know, being fired left and right, accused of being disloyal and so forth. And I think that's a a worrying sign for all Western uh, democracies if, if if this really continues, because what it does is it, it can kind of hollow out the core of, of governments, because th- there actually is a lot of expertise there that uh, governments need to function, especially if there is a crisis like the corona uh, virus and, and that kind of thing. Right. Well, there we go. We've got our headline. Karnichnik speaks up for bureaucrats. Uh, and um, or as, as, they, as they are known uh, in sort of Dominic Cummings speak, the blob, right, which is this idea of a kind of establishment that resists uh, change. And so our homework for next week can be to have translations of the blob, whether it's Lou Blob or La Blob or Derdy or Daft Blob. Um, <laughs> but uh, for now, Matt, uh, Annabelle, Reem, thanks very much. Now let's get an update on the story dominating the headlines, the coronavirus, and how Europe is handling it, with our senior health reporter, Sarah Wheaton. OK, Sarah, so am I going to get coronavirus? Can't rule it out for you, Andrew. I'm sorry. Um, it kind of depends on where you are and where you might be going and who you hang out with. But the bottom line is if if you are um, around one of these regions of northern Italy that already is having this big outbreak, the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control is saying there is a moderate to high risk of infection. And they're also saying that it's pretty likely, almost certain, that similar kind of clusters of um, of outbreaks are going to happen around the European Union. But they're still saying that broadly... The, the chance for any individual person um, is still low to moderate. The good news is you probably won't get that sick. Um, what they're finding is, and this is what kind of makes it hard to track, but um, you can get the coronavirus and have very mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. We're in the middle of flu season, so you might think it's just like normal winter cold stuff. Um, and 95% of cases people have mild symptoms and get better. It's really only in that 5% that there's concern. Those tend to be older people, maybe people have weak immune systems, people who have another disease already. They're the ones who are the most at risk, um, and uh, that can range from needing to go to the hospital, needing to be put on a ventilator, and unfortunately, one, per, one to 2% of cases, uh, people do die of coronavirus. 
Okay, and you mentioned Italy is the place where the outbreak seems to be the most severe in Europe. What's been the response there? What's been the fallout? You know, what's the political reaction there, the response of the authorities to try and deal with this? Well, the authorities are doing some sniping, uh, perhaps no surprise, especially in Italy, where um, different regions actually control different their own health systems. And so um, we saw Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte basically say that a hospital in Lombardy didn't handle the co- protocol for containing this virus properly. And so this is a reason that they're... Um, their right to control their own health system should be revoked. A politician from that region responded that he was being a fascist. Um, it's also worth noting that um, uh, the far-right leader, Matteo Salvini's home base is is the area that's most affected by this. He's called for closing borders. Um, so it's quite, um, quite a, a political kind of zoo um, going on there in addition to the confusion about what's actually, what's actually causing the virus. They still haven't figured out um, how how it started there in the first place. Right, and so this looks like something, at least on the face of it, which would be perfect for a kind of Europe-wide response, never mind having a kind of uniform response across Italy, but across the whole of the EU. So how much is the EU? How much are the EU institutions doing? How involved are they? It's important to remind people here that health policy is one of the areas that the European Union officially doesn't really have a lot of authority over. So it's a lot of urging, sometimes to the point of pleading, to get countries to work together. And we are seeing some of the sort of inconsistencies of EU policy taking place here. Um, We have open borders, we have a Schengen zone, um, and therefore every country in the EU is affected by how well every other country manages this threat. But Brussels can't come in and say, you have to do this. Um, so we've seen a lot of debates about whether borders should be closed. Salvini has has argued that we should shut down Schengen. Uh, we just heard Marine Le Pen make a similar argument. So nationalists, uh, nationalist politicians are definitely jumping on this. Um, but meanwhile, we just had a group of health ministers from areas bordering Italy get together in Rome earlier this week, and they agreed that closing borders would be disproportionate and ineffective. We actually obtained their talking points about this. And so you'll hear that word, that phrase, disproportionate and ineffective, be repeated a lot. And it is worth noting that Italy was one of the only EU countries to uh, restrict people coming in from China, and yet they're having one of the worst outbreaks. So that is kind of a concrete example of of why closing borders might be indeed ineffective. Um, What about any impact on elections? We have local elections coming up in France. Uh, What's been the impact there? Um, in France, we saw quite a juicy little um, little spat happen in the uh, Paris mayoral race. So um, some twists and turns, twists and turns in this. Um, Health Minister Agnès Buzan initially said that she was not going to run on President Macron's uh, ticket in the municipal elections because she needed to stay in her current job and manage coronavirus. She was going to. There was talk she would run in in one of the arrondissements. Um, but uh, when when um, 
when the initial candidate who was supposed to lead that list and run for actual mayor of Paris ended up uh, having to drop out because of a sexting scandal, uh, suddenly this rose in Buzan's priority uh, list. And so she is now running as the uh, République en marche uh, candidate for Paris mayor. And she decided to say in a TV interview that Anne Hidalgo, the, the current mayor, hadn't been planning very well for coronavirus, that Buzan wasn't confident um, that uh, municipal staff were well-trained. Hidalgo responded by producing this letter um, that Buzan sent earlier this month thanking her for mobilizing on coronavirus. Uh, she showed documentation that she had asked lots of nitty-gritty questions. Um, so uh, we're even seeing at the very local level that this is having an impact. Right. Well, finally, just as a, a public service, um, what can our listeners do? What can we all do to uh, minimize our chances of getting the virus? Well, the big way to prevent it is to wash your hands. It's not very exciting. Um, we see a lot of people walking around wearing face masks. Um, but A, you probably cannot obtain one because there's a worldwide shortage of them. And B, they're more for people who likely have it to wear them uh, to to prevent others from getting it. Um, if you have been to one of the regions that's affected and you think that you have it, you probably, or you're feeling kind of flu-like symptoms, you should probably call your doctor. Some doctors are actually people asking people not to come into the office, but to call and, and follow their instructions. Okay, got it. Sarah, thanks very much. Sure thing. That was Sarah Wheaton, our senior health reporter. And now let's head outside of Brussels. That's the sound of the carnival in the Belgian city of Alst, which has been making headlines again this week. Our reporter Eddie Wax was at the carnival. Hi, Eddie. Hello. So um, just give us a recap. Uh, first of all, why has this carnival become controversial? What's its history? Well, it has a history of doing provocative things, having floats, taking the, taking the mickey out of uh, political figures, but also they make an effort to show that nobody is exempt from their ridicule and their satire. So last year, in 2019, they had a, quite a, a lot of condemnation for having floats depicting Jewish men, and they used quite a lot of uh, classical anti-Semitic imagery in, those, in that portrayal, which caused an, a huge fuss, and it led to the town itself removing itself from a UNESCO World Heritage list um, before it could have that ban imposed upon it. So... We're one year on from, from that event, uh, so you went to the carnival this year. How did they respond to the criticism? Did they take it on board and decide to tone things down? Or Absolutely not. No, as soon as I stepped off the train, it was immediately clear to me that they were revelling in the international media attention that they'd got last year. Um, well, revelling reveling in a way to stick two fingers up to all the people who had uh, attacked the carnival. Everybody I spoke to was saying that they were not being racist whatsoever. And there were hundreds of people now this time wearing... Um, fur hats which are worn by religious uh, Jews and pretend sideburns as well which is also another feature of uh, religious Jewish communities um, so no they, they doubled down and went even further this time some, some would say Yeah and you spoke to some of the, the people in the crowd and people in the carnival can you tell us about, about their reaction and, and maybe introduce us to one or two of those people well, the remarkable thing was that they all seemed to be of the same opinion, that there was no anti-Semitism here and that it was basically up to them to determine what was where the line was. Um, this is one guy that I spoke to called Aaron. I met him in a restaurant um, very close to the carnival and he was wearing a black makeup on his face, which some would say is, is, is offensive, um, and was dressed as a clown. If you try to stop us, we just expand it. 
Yeah. That's us. Every time I open the newspaper, I see my city in this graceful situations, which yeah. we know it was not the purpose of it. So what's the you know what's the crux of of their defence? Because they've come under a lot of criticism and uh, they received a lot more this year in response to what you've described. So give us a sense, you know, in a nutshell of why they say what they're doing is okay. Well, they portray themselves as the arbiters of of offensiveness. They say that they can decide basically whether it's offensive to Jews or not, despite many of the people that I interviewed having said that they had not spoken to Jewish people or people of any other sort of ethnic minorities to ask them. But the major line of defence is that they they mock everybody. Um, So they say that if you, because the Jews have kicked up a fuss about this, the reason they're going for them even more is just to show that that as meaningless, that their criticism is meaningless. And this is one person that I spoke to who is actually a member of the jury. Her name is Els van der Straten. Um, she's on the judging committee for the official floats of the carnival. We don't laugh with, with Holocaust. We just laugh with, with the clothes. We laugh with the Britain people. Yeah. But, but not because what happened there, just with the outfits. Okay. That's it. No more than that. And it wasn't just Jews who were the target of, of some of this uh, supposed satire. There were also hundreds of people, um, as we've mentioned before, where it, with black makeup on their faces, which many people would describe as, as, as racist. There were also official floats in the carnival featuring people dressed up as African tribal dancers, dancing to Akuna Matata, um, people dressed as Native Americans, um, people with yellow paint on their faces saying that they were Chinese. So, you know... There was offensiveness all, all around. Okay. The, the blackface is just like uh, it's from the dirt. It's from the dirt. It's, uh, you party, you get dirty, and that's why they already paint their face black. Because at no, the end of the day, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but it's, sure that's but it's like that. But it's like that. No, that's uh, pretending to be that's black. What, that's what, okay. Well, zooming out, if you like, from from Alst itself, what's um, been the broader political reaction, and how does this uh, play into Belgian politics more generally? Well, as you can imagine, it has yet again hit the headlines and it has reached international headlines as well. Um, there were 13 university professors from Brussels who were attacking the carnival, saying that it, shaming, it shames Belgium. Um, the Belgian prime minister waded in on the, on the day, on Sunday, uh, the first day of the carnival this year, and said that it's a, an affront to the values and reputation of, of Belgium. But the, the interesting thing here is that it's, it, there is a sort of a split emerging between the NVR, which is the Flemish Nationalist Party, to whom the mayor of Alst actually, actually belongs, and he's a keen defender of the, of the carnival, and maybe the more French-speaking parties and even other Flemish parties. So there's almost a gulf opening up here between the, the Flemish nationalists who are de- trying to portray themselves as more of the defenders of the traditions um, of Flanders, uh, where Alst is, and uh, the, other, the, yeah, the other parties. And of course, at the moment, those, all those parties are failing massively to, to agree a federal government. That was Politico's Eddie Wax talking about the carnival in Alst. Now, let's talk about one of the big beasts in the Brussels jungle, on paper at least. Valdis Dombrovskis is not as high profile as Commission President Ursula von der Leyen or his two fellow executive vice presidents, but he's one of only three commissioners with that rank and he's basically the Commission's economic and financial supremo. Politico's Bjarke Smith-Meyer sat down with him for a chat recently. Hi, Bjarke. Hey, Andrew. 
So first, I think it's fair to say this is a guy who doesn't do a lot of small talk, although you did give it your very best shot. What was the last book you read? You know, <laughs> the honest answer is that now I'm reading lots of uh, briefings, unfortunately, uh, because now we are in the first uh, 100 uh, days of the new European Commission. Who's your best friend in the Commission? Well, I have uh, many good friends uh, in a uh, Commission. What's your favourite film? Well, once again, uh, good questions. I don't have one uh, favourite uh, film. It depends, you know, on uh, mood and uh, uh, time. Okay, so this is a guy who's all about the work. So let's focus on that and let's get the title out of the way. He is one of those long and creative titles that are a signature of the von der Leyen Commission. Give it to us in all its glory. Okay, get ready. He is the executive vice president responsible for an economy that works for the people. But I actually asked him what that means, and he said it's making sure that... that people see this economic growth also in their wallets. Uh, that's a basic idea, and that's why we are discussing economic policy uh, developments. We are seeing a close link with social policies, and we are emphasizing the need for inclusive economic growth, reducing the poverty and income inequality. Okay, so Dombrovskis is saying his job is to keep the European economy growing, reduce the gap between rich and poor, already a big job. And he also told you he had other things on his mind as well, right? Yeah, right. He also mentioned the demographic changes facing Europe and the digital transformation of the economy. And he wants the world to use the euro more as well. And there's also the biggest uh, elephant in the room, which is tackling climate change. As he explained, it's not easy to strike that balance between cutting carbon emissions and making sure that there's enough money in people's pockets. We see people uh, demanding more action on uh, climate change. We have uh, climate marshes, we have climate uh, uh, strikes uh, and so on. Uh, on another hand, uh, if some uh, changes are uh, introduced, uh, uh, for example, like in France, raise of excise uh, duty on diesel, we saw this as a fact that triggered uh, Yellow West's uh, movement and people protesting. So we need to balance those different tendencies. But Dombrovskis insists the new Green Deal can also be good for the EU. If you look at EU's ambition to be climate neutral by 2050, there are estimates what economic impact it's going to have. And actually it's going to have moderately positive impact of economy and moderately positive impact on jobs. And does everyone agree that that's the way it's going to pan out? Uh, not so much. At the very least, it's a gamble. The new European Commission is making a big bet. This is Guntram Wolf. He's the director of the Bruegel think tank here in Brussels. The big bet is that um, a green deal is not just um, good for the climate, but is actually a huge economic opportunity and not a liability. This is the bet of this commission. And um, it's, um, it's a daring bet because we know that um, tough climate action, of course, has short-term negative economic consequences. Imposing major taxes, for example, on carbon emissions, is a tax on economic activity. Now, Dombrovskis says the commission's got this covered with a new 
Just Transition Fund, which in essence is a pot of cash that'll be used to help the regions facing the toughest transition to a low carbon economy, like coal mining areas, for example. Right, but there's some criticism that that's not going to be enough, right? Yeah, exactly. Because the EU doesn't just have to phase out industries that emit a lot of carbon, it also needs to ensure it's in the vanguard of the industries that it will replace. Let's say the current German car industry goes into decline. Well, that doesn't mean the EU will be the champion of the new electric car. That industry could end up in China or the US, leaving the EU poorer as a result. And it would be beyond ironic if the US stole the green market from the EU, given that the US President Donald Trump has described climate activists as the perennial prophets of doom. Right, now there's also the question of power. Does Dombrovskis actually have the levers to deliver on the big targets he's setting himself here? Yeah, it depends on who you ask. There are only three executive vice presidents in the commission, and he's responsible for a huge economic portfolio. Let's hear from Guntram Wolf again. The executive vice presidents formally don't really have much more power than, uh, than the other commissioners. But of course, the president assigns them with a title and gives them the responsibility to overlook a certain area. And you know, if you are a strong character from a, from a big and important country and you're just a commissioner, um, you might still find it difficult to uh, be guided by um, a, a vice president uh, from a smaller country. Okay, so it sounds like this commissioner from Latvia has his work cut out. Yeah, superpowers may be more like what the man needs, and I tried to ask him about that too. If you had a superpower, what would it be? Uh, difficult to say. Would you fly? Super strength? X-ray vision? Uh, everything sounds promising. Valdis Dombrovskis playing a very straight bat with our own Bjarke Smith-Meyer. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Please consider rating and subscribing to the podcast so you never miss an episode and spread the word to friends and colleagues. We're happy to hear from you anytime at podcast at politico.eu. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.